The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are existing arguments that the executive branch, even without a statutory authorization like an AOMF, can take a lot of steps to both defend U.S. personnel and then even just advance their vision of U.S. national interests in various regards without congressional authorization using military force. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 30th, 2022. The 2002 Iraq AUMF, no, not that AUMF, the other AUMF, the Iraq one, has been on the book since, you guessed it, 2002. It authorized the invasion of Iraq. It has authorized a variety of U.S. military activities since then, and a large bipartisan group of senators and representatives have decided it's time for it to go away. A repeal bill was passed by the House. It is awaiting action in the Senate. We don't know if there's going to be time for that action, before the Senate adjourns, suspect not, but it's a good opportunity to have a conversation about this orphaned AUMF that just keeps on going like the Energizer Bunny through the decades. Scott R. Anderson wrote a two-part series on the subject for Lawfare. He is a Lawfare senior editor, served in the embassy in Iraq, and in the office of State Department legal advisor, we talked through it all. The history of the 2002 AUMF, its surprising rebirth, and its dangerous continued life. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 30th. Scott R. Anderson on the past, the present, and the future of the 2002 AUMF. All right. So, Scott, I want to start with what we're not talking about today, because when we hear the phrase AUMF, everybody thinks of one particular document, and we are not talking about that document today. So start us out with what we're not talking about, and then tell us about the document we are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So there are essentially two AUMFs or authorizations for use of military force that have been floating out there for the last 20 years and have played a pretty central role in a lot of U.S. military operations. 
One of those was enacted a few days after the 9-11 attacks. And that is the one that most people think about when they think about the AUMF. It authorized the use of military force uh, against the perpetrators of 9-11 attacks in any states that harbored them or supported them in an effort to prevent further attacks. And it provides kind of the domestic legal authorization for a very broad swath of global counterterrorism operations and really has for the last 20 plus years since it was enacted, although it's now being complemented by some some other authorities. What I've written about and what we're talking about today is a second AUMF that was adopted about a year later, which was specifically addressed towards Iraq. It's often referred to as the Iraq AUMF or 2002 Iraq AUMF. But what it said essentially is that we, as in Congress, are authorizing the president to use military force, as he seems necessary and appropriate, to address the threat from Iraq without really clarifying what that meant and to enforce our UN Security Council uh, authorizations, or pardon me, resolutions. And so those twin authorizations at the time were understood to be in reference to the Saddam Hussein regime, um, because by this point, the George W. Bush administration had made clear that it viewed the Saddam Hussein regime as presenting a threat to the United States, particularly because of its believed possession of weapons of mass destruction. That was, of course, famously shown to be incorrect after the fact. And this authorization is what ultimately was relied on to authorize the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in March 2003, a few months after it was enacted. All right. So think of this as when people say the AUMF, they mean the 2001 Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and Associated Forces AUMF. When people are talking about this, they tend to say to qualify it somehow with either the Iraq AUMF or the 2002 AUMF. Think of it as the AUMF's oft-forgotten stepchild or cousin. Why do we care about the 2002 AUMF today? For two reasons, really. Um, One a bit more uh, imminent and the other one a little bit uh, more of a a historical incident. The most immediate reason is because Congress is on the verge, although it's been on the verge for quite a while now, of potentially repealing the 2002 AUMF. This is a pretty big step. It's something Congress hasn't done in decades at this point is repeal an outstanding war authorization, particularly one that is still invoked by the executive branch as support for ongoing military operations. Although in this case, none of the military operations that rely in part on the 2002 AUMF rely on it solely so that there's other domestic legal bases on which the executive branch would continue those operations. But historically, a reason why I wanted to write this piece uh, is because I think the 2002 AUMF is a lot more important and has played a much more central role and could play a much more central role in the future than a lot of people, including people in Congress, fully realize. It's often, particularly over the last 10 years since the U.S. occupation and then subsequent major military presence in Iraq has has been withdrawn uh, and now since replaced with a much kind of more streamlined presence related to the counter-ISIL fight there. The last 10 years, it's really been seen as this kind of an addendum, an accessory to the 2001 AMF, cited occasionally as supporting additional supporting authority, but not really playing a significant role. But I think that leads people to discount the extent to which it played a major, major role in authorizing some of the most important U.S. military activities of the 21st century, particularly those first 10 years after the 9-11 attacks and after the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. And it's kind of played a weird return role in the last few years, particularly in relation to the Soleimani strike, that 
I worry, sets itself up and leaves a door open for much broader potential use in the future if it remains on the books. And part of the, my goal in authoring these two pieces are now upon lawfare was to try and bring attention to the broad ways it is interpreted by the executive branch and what that means for how it could be used in the future, even if it's not being used that way today. All right. So let's talk through, first of all, what the law does on its terms, uh, by its terms. Secondly, the history of interpretation. Third, your speculation about the way it could be interpreted in the, in the future and therefore why it's potentially dangerous. And then finally, a little bit about what life would be like without it. That is, what is what is the work that it's doing in the war powers arena that an executive branch might want to keep it around for, although the Biden administration does not. So let's start with actually what it says. What does the 2002 AUMF authorize? So the 2002 AUMF is actually pretty lengthy as far as AUMFs go. It's got a very long preamble where it spends a lot of time talking about the Hussein regime in Iraq, really underscoring that that was what the Congress was thinking of when it enacted the AUMF. Although it's worth noting the preamble does spend some time talking about the global war on terrorism, which was well underway by the time it was enacted, but still in its early stages, and does kind of link the two efforts in a way that some might see as problematic after the fact. But the actual authorizing language is really, really concise, uh, to the extent that I'm just going to read it out. Uh, What it says is, the president is authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be necessary and appropriate in order to, then identifies two, you know, subsequent clause of that. One, defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq, and two, enforce all relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. Other than that, it also put a certification requirement, essentially required then President George W. Bush to certify that diplomatic efforts had failed in regards to Iraq and use of force was necessary, and then installs a reporting requirement that layers on with an existing reporting requirement from the earlier 1998 UMF that's used to authorize the first Gulf War. That essentially says you have to tell Congress how this AUMF is being used every couple, 60 days or so. All right. So uh, the language of it does not seem extraordinary, although it it is a, a bit broader than just get rid of Saddam Hussein. So what is the history of interpretation and how has it ballooned over the years? Well, I I think most people, when they were enacting and debating this resolution, the clearest outcome that people understood, although it was a controversial one at the time, was that this could be used to remove the Hussein regime in Iraq. There was an initial kind of proposition by the Bush administration that they were hoping it didn't come to that. This, This was intended to help reinforce diplomatic measures to achieve that outcome, to build international support for UN Security Council involvement in forcing him to, you know, get rid of weapons of mass destruction. But I think people understood this could be used in military force against that regime and potentially to remove that regime, even when it was enacted. And that's, of course, what happened in early 2003 when the United States, uh, along with a number of coalition partners, having failed to persuade the UN Security Council to take forceful action against the Hussein regime, proceeded unilaterally with a handful of coalition of the willing allies to displace and remove the Hussein regime. The problem we ran into then is that that actually opens the door to a lot of other responsibilities. Because when it 
removes the Hussein regime, which I think most people thought is what Congress was talking about when it described the threat to national security of the United States posed by Iraq, all of a sudden you're left with a big power vacuum in Iraq. Um, the United States essentially found itself in the position of an occupying power. Initially, it kind of resisted that label, although it accepted it pretty readily, and that was confirmed by the UN Security Council um, at the US urging. And all of a sudden that meant that it's responsible for a whole lot of functions within Iraq. It's responsible for guaranteeing Iraq's external security against aggression by neighboring states and allies, You know, patrolling the borders, flying the airspace. Um, but more importantly, it's responsible for or engaging in internal security within Iraq. And under the auspices of the 2002 AUMF, we saw U.S. military forces begin to be engaged in missions ranging from conventional kind of police activity, fighting looting, fighting various types of street crime, rioting, things like that. But then perhaps even more importantly, shifting and playing a strong role in the counterinsurgency effort that really came to define the Iraq conflict for the several years after the US-led invasion, particularly in leading military operations initially and then cooperating with Iraqi officials later on once the, an interim government was in place and then a permanent government to combat groups like Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, which is an Al-Qaeda affiliate that, that laid root there and eventually became kind of the seeds that become became the Islamic State in Iraq and the law, ISIL. But then also against a variety of other armed groups, lots and lots of armed groups active in Iraq during this period that the United States and its allies came into military conflict with, and that the use of hostilities or that engagement of hostilities was seen as authorized by the 2002 AUMF because of its nexus to Iraq. And this idea of the threat posed by Iraq, thereby, thereby expanding to mean not just the removal of the Hussein regime, but those steps necessary to occupy Iraq and somehow stabilize it to turn it into an entity that doesn't have a, serve as a bastion for threats to the United States. So you mentioned earlier that it played a, a kind of alarming role as far as you were concerned in the Soleimani strike. So talk us through what work it was doing in the context of the Soleimani strike and why that bothered you. Sure. Well, there's there's a few there's a step we have to get to before we can get there uh, about where the how the AUMF was used. In that we see the 2002 AUMF used basically for this wide range of security, internal security, and external security operations. The United States was responsible for in Iraq, really up until. Um, certainly the withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, in 2011. The arrangements, again, shifted a little bit at that point. They were really supporting Iraqi forces and doing a lot of these things. But there were a number of cases where they engaged in individual activities. And at that point, the Obama administration, after troops withdrew at the end of 2011, said essentially, hey, we're not using 2002 AUMF for anything. Combat operations in Iraq have closed. The things we were using the 2002 AUMF for have ended. And therefore, we not only think it should be repealed, we don't intend to rely on it anymore. A few months later, however, we saw the ISIL offensive kick off in northern Iraq in 2014. Um, this was a major, major military offensive by ISIL terrorist group related to al-Qaeda in Iraq by, by many accounts or somewhat controversially, for reasons I'll get into in a second, that really seized huge swaths of Iraqi territory very quickly in the middle of 2014. The Obama administration initially responded with uh, unilateral uses of force against ISIL at the request of the Iraqi government to kind of stop uh, ISIL uh, advances around Mount Sinjar, where they were threatening, a lot of people were trapped on 
uh, on the mountain that were part of the Yazidi kind of ethnic and cultural minority um, that they were targeting with what most people understand and believe the United States officially determined to be acts of genocide. Uh, and then also to secure other strategic sites in coordination with Kurdish forces, but initially did that just on the president's constitutional authority as kind of one-off events. But as the Obama administration got closer to the 60-day limit that the War Powers Resolution sets on the president being able to use such military force unilaterally, they ultimately turned to both the 2001 and the 2002 AUMFs as support for those military operations, saying essentially, look, uh, 2001 AUMF authorizes military force against Al-Qaeda, and ISIL is basically a splinter faction of Al-Qaeda. That that continuity, even though at the time they had a kind of hostile relationship with main Al-Qaeda, nonetheless, they'd split off from it, and therefore the authorization runs to them. And in the case of the 2002 Iraq AUMF, we saw this new formulation came out come out that the Obama administration eventually made fairly expressed in a 2015 speech by the, the then uh, general counsel for the Defense Department. Steve Preston, where he said essentially, look, we've always understood the 2002 AUMF to authorize two things. One, what's necessary to secure a stable Iraq, and two, to address terrorist threats from Iraq. And so this reconstrues that statutory language that says address a threat by Iraq, the threat posed by Iraq to U.S. national security, and says, well, we're going to interpret that to mean two things, stabilizing Iraq and addressing terrorist threats within Iraq. That reaches to ISIL, but by redefining that scope, it's really opening it up to a broader range of potential activities, building on that pattern of conduct we saw during the period of U.S. occupation where the AUMF was relied on for such a diverse range of activities. And then Preston makes an initial point that the Obama administration uh, incorporated into uh, the speech and then later into more notably actually into a 2016 report that released just as leaving office, kind of laying out its legal position on these things. It said that we know this is the interpretation of the AUMF, and we don't think it's an issue because Congress has effectively ratified it because we were very clear about what we were doing in Iraq between 2003 and 2011 and afterwards now in terms of the ISIL counteroffensive. We've been very clear about what we're doing here. And Congress, even though it never formally ratified that interpretation or you know, provided any express statutory authorization, even though the Obama administration did pursue it unsuccessfully, they kept appropriating funds to support our activities. And at various times, they enacted legislation that seemed to be premised on the assumption that there were these counter-ISIL activities in particular happening. And when Congress does that, it effectively ratifies this interpretation. So it has now played a role in expanding the interpretation and understanding of the 2002 AUMF into something that now addresses basically any threat to stability for Iraq and any terrorist threat emanating from Iraq. That's what brings us to the Soleimani strike in 2020. All right. So then walk us through how the Trump administration gets from that Obama administration interpretation to the Soleimani strike. We have to remember that up in 2019, leading up to the Soleimani strike, which happened January 2nd, 2020, we were seeing this escalation in tensions between the United States and Iran. And in a couple of cases, close to hostilities. Remember, Iran shot down a U.S. drone over the Persian Gulf. Iran was believed to be responsible for laying out mines and sabotaging various ships of you know, U.S. allies in the Persian Gulf as well. A lot of provocative action. 
And the Trump administration in turn had been ratcheting up its campaign of maximum sanctions against Iran. Uh, it had also shut down a number of consulates in Iraq, or not, a number of cons- consulate in Basra and Iraq that had been under um, military th- threat by essentially Iran-backed militias and taking a lot of incoming, and they ended up shutting down from operations for security reasons around this time, I think a little earlier, late, late 2018, early 2019, uh, as I recall. So we had, saw the kind of pattern of increased tensions. We saw the Trump administration kind of take a new step in this relationship in late 2019, where it targeted a number of these Iran-backed militias, specifically a group called Qatab Hezbollah, that has a pretty well-established relationship to Iran. I think most people accept that. Definitely was engaged in a variety of hostile operations, a lot of which targeted U.S. forces and in many cases, Iraqi military forces as well. And at this point, even though it's largely autonomous, had actually been kind of formally incorporated into the Iraqi security apparatus um, for domestic legal reasons, complicated ones. So it has this kind of weird pseudo-official, pseudo-private status, but essentially operates as an independent armed militia um, that has close relationship with Iran uh, and was believed to be involved in rocket attacks, including some that killed uh, an American contractor, if I recall correctly, in Iraq a few days earlier. The United States takes strikes against these groups in Iraq and in Syria. Um, and it cites as a legal basis for this, the 2001 and the 2002 AUMS, essentially saying, hey, look, we are acting in defense of our forces and partner forces that are as part of this counter-ISIL mission. When the AUMF authorizes a mission, it also authorizes us to defend the personnel involved in those missions. That's that's a concept called ancillary self-defense. It's the term that's kind of come out for it. And therefore, you know, we can pursue these sorts of strikes against this group. This all proved very controversial in Iraq domestically because these strikes have been pursued without the Iraqi government's permission, um, particularly the the ones in Iraq. This triggered a pretty heated reaction, one that was kind of stoked by various, uh, what I think a lot of people would describe as kind of allies or agents of Iran in Iraq, led to large public protests that led to protesters actually breaking into the facilities of the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, uh, although they didn't get too far into it. I don't think they posed a, a serious threat. But they certainly did. And, and so there was this ratcheting up of tension. And then just a day or two after that, the United States takes a strike that kills Qasem Soleimani, uh, an Iranian official, an official Iranian government who's in charge of the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, a, a kind of special forces unit within the Iranian kind of elite military Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's a little more complicated than that, but essentially they're security forces that trains and supports these different militia groups. It takes this action. It kills not just Soleimani, it also kills the leadership of Qatab Hezbollah and a lot of members of Qatab Hezbollah. And it does it on the grounds of the Baghdad International Airport uh, in the middle of the night without the permission of the Iraqi government. A very kind of inflammatory, uh, provocative step, I think, by most accounts. Um, one that even the Trump administration, I think, acknowledged after the fact was had the potential for escalation, although they, they eventually argued that they didn't. They took steps to mitigate that escalation. And we don't initially know what the legal basis for them doing this was. I speculated at the time that the most likely basis was the Article 2, uh, President's Article 2 authority and the 2002 AUMF, potentially the 2001 AUMF as well, although uh, 2002, because it's nexus to Iraq, ha- had an argument there and had actually been used to target agents of Iran back during the U.S.-led occupation, not for lethal activities, but for kind of capture and interrogation activities uh, in 2006, 2007, uh, in a handful of kind of controversial cases, but nonetheless have been used kind of targeting them precisely because of their involvement with these various militia groups in Iraq. We eventually get a legal explanation from the Trump administration. We don't really get a full one until a few months later. There's a speech given by the then 
Defense Department general counsel who kind of lays out an argument. Turns out that that actually pulled very closely from an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that was written at the time that was subsequently released in heavily redacted form in response to litigation by uh, the group Protect Democracy, who we work with a lot. But what we get from this legal argument is essentially this. They do rely primarily on the president's Article II constitutional authority saying, we think the president has the authority to do this on his own without statutory authorization. But then they bring in the 2002 AUMF. And what I think is really interesting about this is that they don't make an argument about the 2002 AUMF providing ancillary self-defense like they did with the prior airstrikes against Qatar Hezbollah, nor do they bring in the 2001 AUMF as they had done with those prior strikes as well. Instead, they basically make the argument that Iran has been involved in destabilizing Iraq, which there's a credible case to be made it has. And Iran has been involved in backing these sorts of activities and that this was an appropriate response authorized by the 2002 AUMF against Iran under those two prongs of the interpretation of the AUMF because they were destabilizing Iraq and because they were provoking terrorist threats in Iraq. That's a pretty actually dramatic expansion of I think most people understood the 2002 AUMF would be authorizing. It went from authorizing the removal of the Hussein regime in Iraq, at least as being its square purpose, to this concept that now, at an era where the United States is no longer occupying Iraq, the United States is, is you know almost a decade removed from that, really, is actually targeting an official of another foreign government operating in Iraq. And it becomes illustrative of what, in my mind, is this very broad potential scope of the 2002 AUMF for the types of activities it could be used to authorize because of the way it's come to be interpreted by the executive branch. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are 
products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right. So help me think through what a hypothetical future use, let's say the Congress doesn't get its act together to repeal it, and it sits around on the books uh, as it has for the last 20 years. What are the scenarios that you are afraid of its providing military force authorization in the future. So unfortunately, uh, for those of us who, who care deeply about Iraq, which I put myself on that list uh, very wholeheartedly as somebody who spent a lot of their career working on, on Iraq issues, you don't have to think too hard to come up with hypotheticals. In fact, you can just pull several of them just from the flat past few years of Iraqi experience and just imagine Iraq having a similar experience again in the future. Just in the past few years, we've seen Iraq first suffer the major incursion by ISIL in 2014 that I mentioned before, where again, you know, a quarter to a third of its territory at one point was under control of this hostile terrorist element uh, that took several years to beat back and take back. And then in 2016, 2017, we saw uh, essentially a mini civil war break out in Iraq between the central government in Baghdad and its substantially autonomous Kurdish region in the north um, that came to hostilities, came to exchange of military forces, central government eventually prevailed. But both of these were cases that very clearly threatened the stability of Iraq. I don't think it would be hard to imagine a scenario where 
executive branch lawyers would look at um, the events happening there and look at the way the 2002 Iraq AUMF has been applied in the past and say, oh yeah, I mean, this checks this box. It's very consistent with our past practice. And we're already on the record through prior administrations of both political parties with the view that this AUMF can be used to address threats to the stability of Iraq or of terrorist groups operating there. But you don't even really have to go that far um, to imagine a scenario like that. The Soleimani strike was the beginning or a, a big part and perhaps the most controversial part of a bigger military campaign against a really real problem in Iraq. Um, Iraq has a real issue with these Iran-backed militias that are operating as essentially entirely autonomous agents, a lot of ways out of the control or contrary to the interests of the central government that doesn't seem able to rein them in to various extents. Again, that could easily be argued as a threat to Iraqi stability or relationship to terrorist threat, as was the case with the Soleimani strike. And you could see broader military action against those groups as falling within the scope of the 2002 AUMF. And then the big one is, of course, Iran itself. And, and I think if you read the Soleimani OLC opinion, the excerpts of it we have, you know, it really is framed in terms of saying, we think Iran falls under the 2002 AUMF. We're taking this more limited action against Soleimani because of concerns about escalation, which pose Article II legal authority problems, because they felt under the 2002 AUMF, the one thing they do feel like they need is a nexus to Iraq. There has to be some relationship to Iraq. Um, so, you know, Soleimani was the strongest tie in a lot of ways of Iranian activities in Iraq. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that was the only sort of activity that the Trump administration felt was authorized by the 2002 AMF. Maybe if it wanted to, it could have pursued something much broader. And the fact that it didn't choose to and that the Obama administration didn't choose to before it doesn't mean that future administrations might not see that be tempted by the ability to take those sorts of actions, those sorts of interventions, if circumstances like those arise again. All right. So what is the current state of play with respect to repeal of the 2002 AUMF? You had said before that it was imminent, but had been so for a long time, which of course, kind of in an executive branch sort of way, defies the common sense meaning of the word imminent or impending. Uh, where are we with this process? We have been on the verge of it happening for about a year and a half now. I think it's fair to say maybe a little less than that. Um, the House has adopted uh, in a freestanding bill that says we want to repeal this uh, the 2002 Iraq AUMF. Um, it has also included a provision that would repeal it both in last year's NDAA that did not make it into the final version and into this year's NDAA. In the Senate, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, has passed its version of repeal, which also would repeal the 1990 AUMF that uh, authorized the first Gulf War, which also is still on the books, but is not quite as broad or, or open-ended as the 2002 AUMF. It would repeal both of those and has a very broad list of bipartisan sponsors to the point that it seems like it has enough votes if Democrats vote uniformly in support of it to overcome even a filibuster if it gets to the floor. But it hasn't gotten to the floor yet. Last year, there was an effort to include repeal in the NDAA. It ultimately failed uh, to make it into the Senate version. And then the repeal measure did not make it into the conference version of the bill, reportedly over objections by uh, certain members of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, and so it was not voted on then. Democratic leadership in the Senate talked about bringing it up for a freestanding floor vote, um, but that did not happen at the end of the last session of Congress. And now we're back in that same position, essentially. We don't know what the Senate NDA looks like right now. It's being handled through a very kind of complex and closed off process. Uh, even folks I talked to on the Hill don't 100% know 
what's getting in and what's getting out um, because it's changing a lot and it's the subject of a lot of internal discussions. But it's not clear whether the 2020 AUMF is any more likely to make it in this year or whether the same people who blocked it last year will have the same opportunity to do so again this year. In fact, I, I would guess the latter is the same scenario because it's the same people involved in the process. And then the question becomes, well, is there another omnibus legislation, another bill that maybe isn't controlled by the same people on Senate Armed Services Committee or whoever else is, is holding this up that might be able to take this provision into it that somebody could that Congress could enact for the end of the year? Or is there enough floor time to have a freestanding vote on the freestanding bill, either the one the House has passed or the one the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has kind of endorsed and moved forward? The problem with that is that this close to the end of this Congress, there's just a lot of things this Congress wants to get done before it gets hand, particularly the House gets transferred over to control of the opposing party, the Republican Party in this particular case. Uh, and so it's a question of do they think there will be a enough time to actually have the debate that's required to move this forward? And I'm not clear to me that that's necessarily in the cards because there is so much to get done and they do have such a crowded lame duck session uh, in place. And so we are really facing the scenario where even if you count the votes, it seems very clear majority of the Senate, um, if not a supermajority enough to overcome a filibuster supports repeal, it's not clear it's actually going to make it into law this year. And if it doesn't, then it's up to the next Congress that's coming in to restart the process all over again. And I do think the odds of a measure like that getting through a Republican-led House is probably much narrower, although not zero, um, because there are a number of Republicans that support repeal uh, in addition to a strong majority of Democrats. So given everything that you've said, what's the argument against repeal? I mean, it sounds like enough senators have an anxiety about it that it's you know, not a sure thing and certainly not on limited time. And yet the Biden administration supports it. It says no current military actions rely solely on it, that repeal would have a minimal impact on any uh, on any operations. So what's the case against repealing it? The number one argument you hear against repeal is that people genuinely feel that U.S. diplomats and military personnel in Iraq and in the region, particularly in Iraq, are under threat from Iran and Iranian proxies in the form of these armed groups, and that repealing this AUMF will send the wrong message to Iran or otherwise hinder the president's ability to respond to those threats. I don't believe any of those are accurate concerns, however, or, or well-placed one, although I sympathize with the concern underlying them. In regards to the ability to defend U.S. personnel, the president it's pretty well established as having broad Article II authority to take defensive action in defense of U.S. military and diplomatic personnel against imminent threats of attack or against actual armed attacks that they've suffered. People debate the exact scope of this authority, but in practice, at least, the executive branch asserts it to be fairly broad. The Biden administration has continued to take strikes against Iran-backed militias like Qatab, Hezbollah, in Iraq and in Syria since assuming office, and it's only done so under the Article II authority of the president under Article 2 of the Constitution, not relying on the 2002 AUMF. Um, that's part of the reason why it's comfortable moving forward with repeal, because it doesn't see itself as being limited in pursuing those limited military actions as necessary to defend U.S. personnel. In terms of the message it sends Iran, I think it kind of miscalculates things to think that Iran has been seeing this or deterred from this. I mean, nothing about this being on the books the last 20 years has substantially deterred Iran from being a pretty provocative actor in Iraq and doing things that do threaten U.S. personnel in very re real ways. 
But what having this on the book does do is that it sends an uncomfortable message to Iraqis, many of whom are really uncomfortable with U.S. military activities in their country because of the still very damaging legacy of the U.S. military occupation there. You hear every time the United States takes military action in Iraq, you hear people uh, particularly, you know, people associated with Iran or, or supportive of Iran, but also many people who generally have this view in the kind of the Iraqi public sphere saying, this is the United States acting with a kind of imperial fashion. They're going to reoccupy. They're going to move back in. They're trying to dominate us. And having a law like this on the books just kind of helps reinforce and invite back that narrative, that message, this idea that somehow the United States is going to take mil- major military action in relation to Iraq under this 20-year-long authorization helps reinforce that. I think the United States has worked really hard, particularly the Biden administration, um, has worked really hard to repair some of the damage that that the Trump administration did towards the end of its time in office, where it was pursuing these very aggressive military actions and ignoring Iraqi complaints about them, and almost led to a situation where the Iraqi government felt, even though it supports a lot of U.S. security cooperatives with the United States, felt compelled because of the public negative reaction to push for U.S. troop withdrawal entirely, something that would be very bad for U.S. security interests in Iraq generally, and particularly for the counter-ISIL fight. The Biden administration famously kind of ended the combat mission in Iraq last year, but really that was just kind of like a shifting around of responsibilities and personnel, it seems. It was more about that still is allowing a lot of security cooperation to happen, the the site that's kind of essential to allow those missions to continue. And it appears to have done enough to kind of calm nerves and get to a more sustainable status quo in regards to U.S.-Iraqi security cooperation. This AMF doesn't fit into that. If anything, it runs contrary to that message that U.S. officials are working really hard to send to Iraqis and that Iranians are working really hard to undermine by trying to lure and bait Americans into provocative military actions that they can then frame as American imposition or imperialism, and that they can then use to justify their own hostile actions against the United States. In my view, I think the United States would be in a much better position without this law in the book where they can honestly say, the only reason we think we have the authority to act in response to these Iranian actions is because Iran is attacking our personnel. We have to act in self-defense. And if we can get to a scenario where Iran cannot or will no longer do that, then we don't think we have the authority to act broadly. We've abandoned these statutes that once allowed, were once relied on to go so far as to invade and occupy Iraq. We've voluntarily repealed those. That's much more in line with the general policy tenor that, frankly, both the Trump towards the end and the Biden administration have attempted to set, and I think is a much more productive way forward for the U.S.-Iraqi relationship and as part of that in its competition between the United States and Iran. So I want I want to ask the reciprocal question, though, because, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, foreign relations law skeptics always say is eh, AUMF, UMF, the United States is going to find a legal justification in Article two for anything it really needs or wants to do. And to a certain degree, you're kind of backing that up. You're saying, well, you know, if it's really important to force protection, they'll use an Article Two theory. So it, the AUMF here doesn't have to do any work. And I, I guess my question is, how skeptical should we be that this is real law anyway, rather than, you know, just a, a kind of dressing for OLC opinions that uh, state and legal principles 
frankly, actions that were going to happen anyway, because they were decided on by non-lawyers. So, you know, there is this kind of constant tension between policy demand and legal argument, but I, I think it's too easy to write off the idea that um, you know, the law has a really substantial impact here, even if it's not always determinative in all cases. I think it's worth bearing in mind here what the delta is, what it would change if you were to repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF. And as you noted, you know, there are existing arguments that the executive branch, even without a statutory authorization like an AUMF, can take a lot of steps to both defend U.S. personnel and then even just advance their vision of U.S. national interests in various regards without congressional authorization using military force. So famously, former President Trump uh, took military action against uh, Syria in 2017-2018. Former President Obama took military action in Libya. Um, these were all things done pursuant to the president's Article II authority. And so these are substantial military actions. And so there is a point to say, yeah, so what, is the, what does it really matter if the 2002 Iraqi MF is on the books or off if the president can still do these things? The one reservoir authority that even the executive branch has acknowledged and has actually reinforced and built up its acknowledgement of over the last several decades since the Vietnam War, uh, actually really even since the Korean War, is this idea that while the president has a lot of authority to do a lot of substantial military action, there is a line it can't cross in terms of major military commitments, particularly involving substantial numbers of U.S. personnel in harm's way, usually in the form of a ground conflict of some sort. And this actually isn't a line that the executive branch has crossed. Uh, we've gotten very close in regards to the Korea conflict. Um, there's a lot of things that make that complicated, uh, although there's an argument that that kind of bumped past the threshold. This threshold hadn't fully been acknowledged or developed at that point. Frankly, in a lot of ways, it's a reaction to the experience of the Korean War and the Vietnam War that many people, including in lawyers in the executive branch, have come to accept this idea that there is this limitation. And it reflects the allocation of authorities in the Constitution, that the fact that Congress gets the declare war authority under the declare war clause, not, not the president. So this is that reservoir of authority that's been narrowed, but it's still there substantially for major armed conflicts that need statutory authorization. That's what the 2002 AUMF is a big escape hatch from. So in other words, if you want to conduct some bombing raids against Libya, you know, maybe you don't have to go to Congress for that if you use drones and if your pilots are not at risk. And if you want to, you know, if you want to send a whole lot of troops to Korea and you have a UN resolution, maybe that's good enough, although it kind of isn't anymore. And if you want to do something about uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, you can kind of ignore Congress completely. But if you actually want to invade a country, presidents kind of still acknowledge that you got to go to Congress for that. And that is what the 2002 leaving it on the books theoretically allows a major military operation against Iran without an act of Congress. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that, that, that's exactly right. Uh, an active mil major military activity against Iran or against a lot of other targets that somehow implicate Iraq. Again, the main restriction here is a nexus to Iraq and something that threatens Iraqi stability or terrorist threats from Iraq. That's the express way the executive branch has described itself as understanding the 2002 AMF. That's a real broad range of potential outcomes and threats, particularly if this stays on the books for another 20 years. Who knows what state 
Iraq, unfortunately, it may well be in over those next several decades. And more than that, it's not. It, it is importantly that major conflict. The other restrictions to escape that major armed conflict, the major major invasion or major land war restriction that is imposed by the Constitution, as even the executive branch acknowledges, mostly at this point. There's a, maybe some exceptions for self defense that aren't really relevant here. The the other restriction it gets out of is the sixty day clock imposed by the War Powers Resolution that I mentioned before. This is a provision of the War Powers Resolution that says if the president acts under his own constitutional authority, he basically has 60, or if he does take certain steps, 90 days before he has to go to Congress for authorization or he's supposed to end those hostilities. The Nixon administration initially said, we don't think this is constitutional, but the executive branch has actually kind of acknowledged since then that there's a good reason to believe that this provision actually is constitutional, would be found constitutional on its face. Um, a number of OLC opinions that were just released through the Knight Foundation's uh, FOIA litigation in the last few few weeks or months at this point, kind of verify this, that this is actually a strong, more strongly held view within the executive branch and the, the executive branch really acknowledges. They think there's some real, a lot of tools that can be used to keep those legal questions from ever becoming in front of a court. Um, but they still feel this pressure to say, we can't reject the legitimacy of this provision. And if we ignore it too brazenly, that might set up the conditions in which a court will push back on us. So what we see the executive branch do often is develop crafty interpretations of the War Powers Resolution, interpreting the term hostilities very narrowly so it doesn't really incorporate you know, airstrikes of the type that were pursued in Libya, or pursuing individual actions without acknowledging they're part of a concerted military campaign so the 60 to 90 day clock keeps starting over again. These are kind of weird tricks and they seem to deprive the War Powers Resolution, I think arguably do, of a lot of its you know, strictest force. But they actually also suggest that the executive branch takes that limitation seriously to some extent to actually adjust its tempo and type of operations to accommodate being able to make these legal arguments. If the United States pursues military action under the AUMF, they don't have to worry about that 60, 90 day clock. So it's not, it can mean also a major a conflict of a major scale, or can mean a major extended duration conflict. Or, and this is particularly in the case of Iran and the Soleimani strike, maybe the most important, it might also mean more minor military actions with a major risk of escalation. The idea basically is that even if you take minor military action, if you've got a real reason you think it might escalate no major conflict, you run into the same barriers. Uh, The Trump administration, to its credit, actually really drove that point home in its OLC opinions, um, specifically related to those Syria airstrikes I mentioned earlier. And that's actually, you know, itself is also a major restriction that comes into play here. And it's one that the Soleimani strike really pushed against the limits of. The Trump OLC kind of made some arguments about why they felt like that strike had a more limited risk of escalation. Then they kind of trumpeted the fact that, oh, well, it didn't really escalate a few months later once we're writing this. So, haha, looks like we were mostly right, which I don't think is a very credible assessment of, of the way facts actually broke down uh, in that particular case. Regardless, the key point being is you, you if you are worried about the executive branch overreaching and using military force unilaterally, you want those counterpoint pressures to say, well, you have to think about escalation and try and limit your routes of escalation. You want to adjust your operations so you're not engaging in extended warfare or large-scale warfare, warfare. Even if they don't serve as hard limits on the executive branch, they serve as important soft limits and factors that enter into what sort of military action it considers that give Congress a lot of leeway and opportunity to say, hey, we support this or we don't. And that's really what Congress risks giving away. And I think it's a lot more significant when you're talking about a country like Iraq, which has such a complicated relationship with a U.S. rival like Iran and with so many other challenges, leaving that sort of doorway open 
just for anything tied to that country, which is kind of the state where we found ourselves in, it strikes me as really incredibly dangerous. All right. So we have six more weeks left in the year, or actually four more, five, four and a half more weeks left in the year. Uh, not all of them are legislative days. Uh, what are the chances that, uh, in your judgment, that the 2002 AUMF lives long enough for us to have another podcast about it? Uh, well, Ben, for folks who may have watched Lawfare Live back in the day, they, they are aware that you and I had a bet, a bet that uh, where I thought the 2002 AUMF was going to be repealed last year um, once it made it into the House NDAA. Uh, and knowing that the bill had a fair amount of strong bipartisan support on the Senate side as well. And that didn't happen. Um, so I'm done making bets <laughs> on the future of the 2002 AUMF. There is obvious some very deeply held opinion by a pretty discreet minority of folks, primarily in the Senate, it seems, and in, and in parts of the House, that still oppose this sort of action. And I frankly haven't heard a very good articulation as to why, other than those um, concerns I've already addressed regarding uh, Iran and U.S. personnel. But it's hard to know exactly how much influence they wield because so many of these debates, particularly around the NEAA, the closest that this measure has gotten to being enacted, are behind closed doors. And so it's hard to know exactly what the stopping point is uh, and what the dynamics around our negotiation. Also, because these are all being done in the context of omnibus bills where there's a thousand things being negotiated and inevitably some things that that a lot of people like find their way on the cutting room floor because they just have to make progress in a limited time frame. Those are real obstacles. And, you know, I think this current Congress has a lot of very important things like Electoral Count Act reform and, you know, the other, the rest of the NDAA and a lot of budget bills, Ukraine assistance that it really does need to debate and enact for very, you know, well-founded reasons, at least from the perspective of the current House and Senate leadership to get done before the new Congress sits at the very beginning of next year. And so, you know, the argument that, these, this measure that really addresses a, a hype, current what is currently a hypothetical should bump floor time for those, it can be a hard argument. But I do think it's really important, and the reason I wrote these pieces is that, that Congress understands what it's doing when it leaves these things on the books. And that is leaving a big door open here. And my hope is that maybe in considering this and helping draw out some of these consequences and the evolution of, of the AOMF, folks on the Hill and this Congress will see the reasons why this warrants maybe at least a slice of the floor time they have left or warrants being included in one of these omnibus bills that could still serve as a vehicle for it. Or if that doesn't happen, then in the next Congress, members of the Republican-led House uh, and the same bipartisan coalition in the Senate that's been pushing this now for several Congresses um, will be able to come together and make progress on this in narrowing and removing this authorization so it it doesn't have that big carve-out for congressional power over war and peace that it that currently serves as. It'll be you and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, fighting this uh, battle together to the last man. Uh, Scott R. Anderson, we are going to leave it there. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Look, folks, it is Giving Tuesday as I record this. It'll be post-Giving Wednesday by the time you hear it. If you have not become a material supporter of Lawfare, I do want to impress upon you 
that there is no law against giving material support to designated Lawfare podcasts. You should do it. You should become a material supporter of Lawfare, and you can do so without fear of prosecution. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.